0: So visualization, I call it the model-based enterprise, which is the ability to take 2D and 3D graphics and integrate it with business data to create a new user paradigm. And so when we take that same concept of visual learning into what I call the visual enterprise, it enables the 2D or 3D context to the business problems, meaning when we connect the business data to the visualizations, It provides us another level of graphical interpretation of the data. And really, the contextual information really comes to light and is really a differentiator in the user experience.
1: Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. My name is Richard Howells. I'm a vice president for Thought Leadership for SAP's ERP Finance and Supply Chain Solutions. And I'm joined by my co-host, Nicole.
2: Hi everyone. I'm Nicole Smyth and I'm a blogger, podcaster and marketer in the supply chain space here at SAP. So today we're joined by our guest Lars Olsen to discuss how visualization tools transforms the user experience across the supply chain. So welcome Lars, thank you so much for joining us today and it is so great to have you on the series. So if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself, Give some insight into your past experiences in the visualization space and your role today. Well,
0: thank you very much, Nicole and Richard, and I'm very happy to be on the podcast today. Again, my name is Lars Olson. I'm a solution manager in SAP's Digital Product and Projects line of business, also known as Product Lifecycle Management. I came to SAP through the acquisition of Right Hemisphere roughly 12 years ago and basically got into the visualization well- graphic design and photography and CAD my entire life. So dating back all the way to junior high and high school, where I took graphics classes, photography, and learned the traditional trades in high school, and then went off to college and continued my career in industrial technology, specifically around graphic design, photography and CAD, and went straight into work, becoming a tradesperson in the printing field which led me into software, graphic software development in the early 90s. Got into 3D visualization in 1999 and really been in that space for going on 20, 25 years now.
2: That's awesome. Well, thanks, Lars. And I remember my photography class back in middle school. I have such fond memories of it. So that's awesome that you were able to get it so far in advance in your life as well. But to kick things off, I just want to start you know, with the broad question, because surely all user interfaces are visual nowadays. So what do we mean when we say visualization in this specific context?
0: Yeah, very, really good question. So visualization, I call it the model-based enterprise, which is the ability to take 2D and 3D graphics and integrate it with business data to create a new user paradigm. Why would we want to do that? Really, if you look at the vast majority of the global end users, 66% of the world populations are what we call visual learners. That means they need some sort of graphical context to learn and retain information, such things as bar graphs, infographics, and other types of graphics information really conveys the information that people are able to retain. And so when we take that same concept of visual learning into what I call the visual enterprise. It enables what I call the 2D or 3D context to the business problems, meaning when we connect the business data to the visualizations, it provides us another level of graphical interpretation of the data. And really the contextual information really comes to light and is really a differentiator in the user experience. Imagine today, any product is designed in 3D, So we can actually use that 3D model as the primary interface and really have a paradigm shift in the way that you access this business data through the 3D model or the 2D graphics.
1: So I'm also a bit visual person. I guess I'm in that 66%. And I always also need examples. So this is the $64 million question. How will visualization change the future of work, especially across the supply chain?
0: Yeah, another really good question. But as products and assets become more complicated and sophisticated with the integration of not only software and mechanics, and obviously IoT sensors, the amount of data that we capture around these products and assets is increasingly expanding, you know, at a high rate. And so all of this data is being captured in back end systems. And now you need to somehow make sense of all the data, right? So, if we take everything that we have in the world today from a, a simple bottle to the most complicated, sophisticated equipment, spaceships, aircraft, whatever it is, right? We're all capturing data around the life cycle of those products or assets. And in the life cycle perspective, right, you have this long life cycle of data that's coming in, the service information or the asset information. That you know, can span anywhere from 30 to 50 to 100 years, right? So if we break this down, imagine a car. A car is made up of a model that you buy, either used or online, new car. Mm-hmm. And it's made up of subcomponents like the chassis, the drivetrain, the electronic system, the fuel system, and so forth. And everything that's made today kind of has a hierarchy of components that make up these top-level assemblies of the vehicle, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at all those components, they're all pieces in the supply chain. And each one of those components are parts, also known in SAP speak, we call them materials. They're all located in 3D space depending on the configuration, but they all have a large set of master data in the supply chain from design to planning to manufacturing, to logistics, to service and asset management, right? And so each one of those components that make up the vehicle or the digital twin or digital thread have this long life cycle through development, through, you know, manufacturing, and then they actually get in the real world and get used anywhere from a car from, you know, 10 years to 20 to 30 years, right? And so all your service information, Everything is recorded digitally. So how can you use that 3D model that comes from CAD to reference all that master data that's captured in all those systems? That's really what we're trying to invoke is actually using the existing CAD data that's used to design almost everything that there is today. And how do we access the master data through that 3D model to give us the contextual information rather than looking at text or tables, or indented hierarchies of data, which is, if you think about a car, it's going to have like thousands of parts. And now imagine you're going through a table of thousands of parts and trying to get the information where with a 3D visualization, you could just point and click and get access to any of that master data or the digital thread from that single point and shoot selection.
1: So we've talked about the design process and creating a 3D visualization of future product. So now we hand it over to manufacturing. So what type of examples have you got where visualization tools will transform the plant worker of the future and their day-to-day job?
0: Yeah, so really it's about embracing this idea that we have to bring new, younger people into the manufacturing sectors, right? The trades are really where things are made and we really have to retrain this what we call the tribal knowledge of manufacturing that was traditionally digitized with paper, with carriers through the manufacturing process. So the first thing we do when we're actually enabling the manufacturing process is what we call the intelligent handover. That's taking the structure, the e a lot of people call it the engineering bill of materials, and we actually restructure the actual 3D model to the manufacturing bill of material in a handover process. And we do that visually today. And what that enables us to do is to make sure that each individual that's working at a work center or work cell on the shop floor has the pertinent material information for all the components that they're going to be assembling on the shop floor, but also the access to all the master data that sits behind those components or sub-assemblies when they're manufacturing. So once we transform the engineering bill of material to the manufacturing bill of material, then we're able to also create 3D visual work instructions. And 3D work instructions are nothing more than the best standard procedures for actually assembling a particular component to an assembly or vice versa, right? You're actually building up the end product over time through these work cells and you can show in detail for every view that the end user is going to be manipulating that product, you can change the 3D view, add text, call out information, like the ultimate IKEA word description with pictures. But 3D, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then 3D is worth right. a thousand pictures, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're able to manipulate every view for every assembly instruction, add text, contextual call outs, highlighting parts, and so forth. So that the graphical information, again, is the primary user interface to the manufacturing process.
1: So that means that there's a different level of granularity again, because you not only know the parts that go into that product, but also the steps of manufacturing the product.
0: Absolutely. And you take it one step further, again, since it's 3D and everything's selectable. For example, if you have a non-conformance thing that comes up, maybe something scratched or there's a dent in the surface or whatever you can literally click on the 3d model and raise a non-conformance report which pushed that component or subassembly of that product into a holding area so it can be evaluated on the best way to fix that so it can continue its journey along the manufacturing process or in some cases and worst case scenario it goes to scrap mm-hmm. right but again You're using the 3D model to point and click and say, I need to raise a nonconformance issue around this particular section of the airplane or aircraft or whatever it is. And basically it's point and shoot. Wow.
2: That's incredible. I think it's so vital and important to like, you're just speaking about the nonconformity instead of getting too far down in the process. Say, like you said, you're building something as complex and huge as a spaceship you're not getting so far into the process then where, you know, you can't go back or you can't reverse. You're really catching it ahead of time instead of causing issues down the line. So it's incredible what that can do. But we spoke to Mike Lackey a few episodes ago, actually, about Smart Factory. So it is also really interesting to see, you know, it in 3D and then it now in purpose and in use as well. So it's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, Mike's awesome. I spent a lot of time traveling in China with Mike yeah. <laughs> promoting manufacturing and visual work instructions because mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of manufacturing that goes in China and in the greater APJ region.
1: Just as another follow on from that as well, you, you talked about going to different countries with different languages.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would imagine that's a huge benefit of a visualization tool. <laughs>
0: Yeah, really, it is. I mean, if you can take localization out of the picture, so to speak, and use the picture to convey the message, if you think about, you know, what 3D models are today, really, they're modern day cave drawings, right? The oldest form of communication, right? <laughs> yeah. Before there was text and words, there was pictures that conveyed messaging. So really with 3D models and the ability to animate them and to highlight them and to change the view to whatever view the end user needs to see or Mm -hmm. turning objects off so they can see the interior is the ultimate communication language and breaks that barrier across localization needs. And really, you can just use the graphics to communicate, Mm -hmm. really.
2: That's huge. Well, like Mike, he had so many great examples in the manufacturing space of smart factories and customers really enhancing their processes. And another important aspect of supply chain is, of course, logistics as well. So given your experience in the space, I'm sure you have some great examples like Mike did of visualization being utilized in those processes, like in the warehouse and transportation areas. So could you speak a bit on some of these examples that you've come across so far?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The obvious one in transportation management is what we call load planning, Mm -hmm. right? So imagine you have a vessel, a truck, a plane, a ship, whatever. So you need to load and unload those vessels in the way that makes most sense from a distribution perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So if you take a truck, for example, and it's going to go through a route within a city, the first thing that is going to come off the truck at the location obviously needs to be the last thing loaded, right? So we use 3D visualizations that are the what we call the bounding box of the pallet or the boxes or whatever, And we use 3D visualization to do load planning, which is like a sophisticated algorithm of Tetris to place the boxes and the pallets of information in the meaningful way from how it's going to be unloaded. And we actually build that up based off of the weight and so forth in the master data so that you're not crushing boxes. And it's like a 3D Tetris algorithm. And it basically optimizes the load and then it enables the truck driver to have a load plan so when they're pulling into a particular location, they know exactly which boxes come off, which are the ones hopefully the closest to the back door or should be the one closest to the back door. And they unload those things first and then they kind of mark that off their checklist digitally and say, okay, that load was unloaded at that particular location. And having a 3D view of that, again, gives the contextual information to the driver exactly what's going to be offloaded and delivered to the customer at any given point.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. It's like inventory where it's like first in first out, but almost reverse, I guess. So
0: exactly. That's exactly what it is. (laughs)
2: That's awesome. I mean, applying supply chain processes in every kind of step in the full process, even in a 3d process too. Yep. Absolutely. But another aspect too, I would love to touch on are the visualization tools in a warehouse, you know, to improve picking and put away processes as well. So are there any examples in that aspect of logistics too?
0: Yeah. I mean, imagine if you have a cart that you're supposed to pick from a logistical warehouse end user, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of these parts will be in bins that they either can electronically mechanically pull the information from. But a lot of the times it's still a manual process where they need to go down aisles and aisles, of a warehouse and find locations. Well, Mm -hmm. imagine now that your entire 3d warehouse facility is just that tied to all the information. So not only can you present the proper path to walk along the aisles and the order to optimize your walking time or your picking time, Mm -hmm. but you can also paint the entire bins and warehouse by logistical information like lead time in case, something is actually going in shortage, right? You could say, hey, we're running out of these particular components or parts or product in these bins. Mm -hmm. And so, hey, we need to find the clearest distribution center to get more of that product in or start sending off alerts to say, hey, we're running low on inventory. And we know exactly in 3D space, exactly what those objects are because it's tied to the master data from a logistical warehouse perspective. Mm
2: That's incredible. I think it also ties to worker safety as well, which I think is a big topic too, where if you actually have that visualization and you know where these items are, you don't have to put workers in dangerous situations to try to get something that may be too far in the back or maybe are at high heights, things like that. So you really have that visibility into seeing where those items are, which I think is just so vital and crucial.
0: Yeah, we we actually paint by EHS values. When we say paint, we're basically painting analytical information about maybe where a lot of incidents are happening, right, so that you can get the proper security measures in place so that you can reduce those incidents by painting the incidents on the facility, for example.
2: Yeah, That's awesome.
1: On a slightly Off topic, but related topic, Nicole mentioned employee safety. Are you seeing companies using visualization tools to train workers so that they don't have to be trained on the job? They can be virtually trained and then having augmented reality tools as well to help them in that process.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge topic, obviously, with the release of the Apple Vision Pro and, you know, all the other augmented and or virtual reality hardware solutions that are out there. You know, Training is a big topic. Like I said, that tribal knowledge of retiring subject matter experts and how do you convey that knowledge that's in their heads to the next generation of workers. And that's really where 3D has a big advantage, as well as 2D, I should say. Mm-hmm. But really 3D, having that viewpoint of any view where you can virtually walk around a product or asset or place the product or asset in a space using augmented reality on mobile phones or augmented or mixed reality devices is really the next generation of training our new actual colleagues, you know, that are coming up Mm -hmm. through the ranks. This is a growing industry. It's really now set for prime time because the hardware to support that is becoming affordable. It's lighter the batteries are lasting longer mm-hmm. and the idea of that not just putting them in a virtual headset, which has some nausea associated it putting in a mixed reality where you can actually see through the lens in yeah. the environment is really going to enable this technology because you're now not really getting sick because you're in a virtual environment and you get vertigo type of symptoms mm-hmm. because you don't have any relationship to the horizon. <laughs> so I really think that this is the next generation and our cloud solutions today allows us to push these 2D and 3D visualizations directly into these devices. And we we only need to develop the technology once, and we can deploy it across these different headsets through our deployment systems that we have today. So literally, it's really point and shoot, or not point and shoot. It's really upload, and these devices are basically enabled for virtual reality, augmented reality, and mixed reality.
1: One of the use cases I've seen for that is in the maintenance world, because maintenance is a growing business. I mean, there are many industries where the after-sales service model is vital for a company's revenue stream. We have maintenance of equipment within our facilities and our manufacturing facilities. So how is visualization leveraged to see how products are performing in the customers' locations? And if they require maintenance, how to assist the maintenance engineers do their job better?
0: Yeah, another really good question. And it's a topic that I've been working on for maybe three or four years now. And really, the primary advantage of OEM manufacturers today is that they actually typically own all the CAD data that they're trying to service when their products become servable equipment in the field. So what does that mean? Well, you can transform that CAD data directly into visualization data and then create visual service instructions, or augmented reality. And essentially, every component has the material ID or the product ID behind it. So again, like I said, in the manufacturing process, you can create a visual service instruction that can be played back in augmented reality or virtual reality. So you can physically place the product in the space that you're at. But more importantly, these visual work instructions are created from the manufacturing bill of material because how you assemble it is how you're going to disassemble it from a service perspective. So we handed over the E-BOM to the M-BOM, and then you need to take that m and that visualization and create a service bill of material from that. And that's how you create a visual work instruction based off of that structure so that you're telling either the authorized service provider or the OEM service person exactly how to disassemble, exchange the spare parts, know exactly what spare part goes where. And if that visualization is connected to the supply chain through the material ID, you know exactly where that material is able to be purchased or logistically delivered in the supply chain through the 3D visualization. So we've integrated not only spare parts into SAP Commerce Cloud, but also into augmented reality into SAP Service and Asset Manager from a service persona. Actually, when you deliver the service work order, you get the 3D visualization and they open it out in the product model viewer, which allows them to see exactly how to service that particular product in 3D.
1: So we've talked through the different silos from design to operate and how the digital twin or the digital thread can be the common link that passes information all the way through the process and visualizes all that process. But what happens when something changes? I mean, you might get feedback from the maintenance team that determines that we need to do an engineering change in the original design of the product. How does that ripple through the supply chain from a visualization perspective?
0: Yeah, that's probably the the first question that we always get from a manufacturer, right? It's fine when
1: everything goes according to plan, but then things change. Exactly.
0: So if you can imagine either a short-term development cycle or a long-term development cycle, there's quite a bit of engineering change that happens, right? It could be literally maybe 10 parts per night. It could be hundreds of parts per night. And so how do you deal with that delta when you're creating downstream deliverables based off of that CAD data from one day to the next, right? So we experienced this on the shop floor for the last 25 years, really, because we are creating visual manufacturing work instructions and what happens when the configuration changes or a part changes or the effectivity changes. How do you incorporate that change into the visual work instruction or downstream in the service instructions and so forth, right? And it's a really hard problem to solve But we kind of cracked the nut probably uh, 10 years ago, I want to say. And the way that we cracked this problem is that within our visualizations that we create downstream of design, we track the visualization back to the original CAD IDs in the CAD system. And what that enables us to do is understand the delta from one design to the next. And then when a change happens, say a part changes, form fit or function changes, right? We can apply all those authoring things that we've done downstream in the visual work instructions to the new part because we know exactly what changed in the CAD file and we just apply all the authoring changes to that new part when you merge that new part into the assembly.
1: Does that mean it's a net change? Only pass down what's changed versus...
0: Yeah, it's just the delta. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to change the entire thing when one part only changes. And we ultimately let the end user that understands the change to make that change in the visualization files, right? Because they have to understand like, okay, we're going to apply this animation to this new part, yes or no. This is not something you can fully automate because you may not want to fully automate it. And so we really... On a granular level, we basically allow the end user who's merging in the new part to say, yes, I want to make this change across these views, across these animation sequences and so forth. Mm, It's incredible.
2: Well, so far we've covered so many different topics, you know, from data and components being captured for items like spaceships and cars, but also of course the different augmented reality tools for training in the maintenance space or the trade space. But I think the biggest aspect in these new enhanced processes is, of course, technology's vital role in it all. So in your opinion, how has technology evolved to really make all of this possible?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, there's no doubt that 3D, specifically visualization in the last 25 years, has evolved rapidly. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I mean by that is, In the turn of the century, 2000, 1999, there was roughly between 45 and 50 different 3D viewers that were web-enabled for what I call real-time visualization on a computer. Mm -hmm. So there was literally 50 choices to a customer, all of them having advantages and disadvantages. And so a couple of things have happened in those 25 years, 24, 23 years. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the first major technology breakthrough was basically webgl and html5 and basically what that means to an end user that's not a propeller head is essentially that 3d became a object that's embraced and endorsed by every web browser out there meaning it's a first class citizen from a graphical perspective and everybody's mobile device their laptop or their pc every web browser now supports these 3d objects so That got rid of what we call the viewing problem, which is how do you download a viewer? Well, you don't have to download a viewer any longer. It's just embedded into HTML5, okay? So that's the first thing. The second really big change or influence on the availability of 3D graphics on a common web browser is the GPU, the graphics processing unit, all right? So the GPU is a hardware piece chip within your computer that basically drives both 2D and 3D graphics. And literally, if you would have asked me five years ago, who would be the number one GPU for mobile device manufacturers, I probably would have said NVIDIA or maybe Intel. Well, the fact is, is now Apple has the number one mobile GPU out there, right? So. Why? Well, because they wanted to enable gaming like technologies on their iPads and their iPhones. You know, Apple said they didn't want to be dependent on these other GPU vendors and they wanted to make sure that they could control the performance of their mobile devices for those particular end users. And from a visualization perspective, I just latch onto that whole gaming community and train. And get all the advantages that come because that's such a huge marketplace that everything that I do is dependent on a GPU. And so I've been riding this hockey stick of GPU performance from an iPad 1 to the latest iPad Pro. And it's thousands of times more powerful, meaning literally the types of 3D geometry and textures and, and everything that's supported on these mobile devices is mind boggling. And that's all happened in a very, very short amount of time. And it continues to increase at a very high, rapid pace. So the end use case for mobile users is that we get all this awesome technology literally for free because of the gaming community.
2: Hmm. And I think that's so interesting because the gamer of today is also like the worker of the future. So, I mean, a lot of my cousins, a lot of the kids I grew up with, all were gamers. And of course, now, you know, we're in corporate America, we're in different jobs and things like that. So having that experience growing up and now being able to utilize that in our day-to-day jobs is just incredible to see. So it's really interesting to see that (laughs) transition, but believe it or not, we have already been talking for almost 30 minutes or over 30 minutes now. And I think Richard can also attest, we could probably go for 30 plus more minutes at this point, but You know, as we come to the end of the podcast, the title is, of course, the future of supply chain. So I think you know where we're going with this next question. But if you had to summarize in a sentence or two, what is the future of supply chain in your opinion?
0: Well, great question. And to kind of wrap it up, look, my whole responsibility and roles within SAP to the world population is to change the user paradigm around supply chain information and the best way is to build a better mousetrap and i believe that the visual enterprise is the better mousetrap it gives you all the contextual information of every component that makes up a product or asset to not only manufacturing plan design you know logistical information asset information into a single viewport where you can kick off processes directly from the visualization of your product, your asset. You can see all the transactional information. You can see all the master data in the right context to the end persona, right? And so really, I think the future is very bright because we now have the ability to transform the interface between the supply chain information and the products through visual context. And really, that's what I hope to leave not only SAP, but the whole world is no longer do we have to go through this tables of information, these, you know, indented hierarchies, multiple transactional screens. You go to one screen that basically shows all the information that you need to see in 3D to the, all the information that that persona needs at individual time to make a transactional or a business decision, period. That's it.
1: Mm-hmm. And the older I get, the more I believe her. Yes. <laughs> S is more, but, but the right stuff.
0: Yes, agreed.
1: Hey, Lars, thanks for a great conversation. It's been wonderful.
0: Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Richard. Look forward to speaking to you on the next podcast.
1: I'm sure you will. Be. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening. Please mark us as a favorite. You can get regular updates and information about future episodes. But until next time, from Lars, Nicole, and I, Thanks for discussing the future of supply chain.